One of the reasons our hope is not as strong as it ought to be is because we stop reading our Bibles too soon. I don't mean we don't read our Bibles long enough each day. I mean we don't read it all the way to the end. Maybe the reason we don't read it all the way to the end is because the book of Revelation seems so daunting to us and confusing at times to us with all those beasts and judgments and symbols that fill up the middle of the book. But the last two chapters of Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22, tell us the true happy ending, not only of the story that Revelation is telling, but the story that the whole Bible is telling, the story of how God is redeeming his people and setting right everything that went wrong in the beginning. Those chapters, Revelation 21 and 22, offer us an unbeatable hope and an unsurpassed vision of the future that God has prepared for his people. But we rarely go there. And as a result, that vision of glory and good and joy has not shaped our hope or even our hymns as much as it should. So I invite you to turn with me this morning to Revelation 21 and 22. That will be our focus for our sermon today. In this season that we're in of uncertainty and anxiety, we all need all the hope we can get. And these chapters offer one of the strongest doses of hope that I know of anywhere in the Bible. So let me read for us the first few verses of Revelation 21, and then we'll begin to dig in. John the Apostle says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now, before we start looking at those verses and others in Revelation 21 and 22 in detail, there's something I want us to make sure we understand from the rest of the Bible, and that is that this promise in Revelation 21 and 22 of a new creation should not come as a surprise to us if we have been paying attention to the rest of the Bible story. So in the Old Testament and earlier in the New Testament, the Bible makes very clear that God is preparing for us a new Creation, a new heavens and a new earth in which he will dwell with his people. So, this is not just some 
um, you know, uh, something tacked on to the end of the Bible uh, that kind of comes out of nowhere. This is something that we should have been anticipating best, based on what the prophets and earlier apostles wrote in the New Testament. So why do I say that? Why, uh, why do I say that this is, not a, this is not a surprise at the end of Revelation? Why do I say that this hope is woven throughout the entire Bible? If, if it's not woven uh, throughout the entire Bible, and it does come as a surprise at the end, then um, maybe we won't think as much about it. But if it is something that is woven through the entire Bible and ought not to come as a surprise, then uh, it's certainly something we should not only not dismiss, but something that we should pay much attention to. Um, Perhaps we will realize in that case that if we have been overlooking this promise of a new creation, that we've been overlooking something that is central and essential to our hope and to our faith. So let's start with this. We saw at the beginning of this series that God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 and 2. He created the first man and the first woman, gave them bodies, and that all of this was good, and that this was part of God's original design for him to dwell with his people in the Garden of Eden, in this beautiful creation that he had made. He made us to live on the earth, and he made us to dwell in his presence on the earth. If the end of the Bible ends with the heavens and the earth destroyed and no new heavens or new earth, just the creation as we know it is dissolved and destroyed and nothing takes its place and we live uh, just in some heavenly non-material place forever with no bodies, then if that was the case, then that would mean that God had abandoned his original plan, his original design for creation. It would mean that he just burned the whole thing up and went another direction. But not only does the Bible not say that that's how things are going to end, but if we pay attention to how God acts throughout the Bible when humans mess up what he has put in place through our sin, we will see that time and time and time again, when our sin uh, intervenes or, or, or seeks to mess up God's plan, he doesn't abandon it. When he does uh, bring judgment as a result of that sin, he always rebuilds, replants, restarts what he had already been working on to begin with. Take Noah as an example. Right? Noah lived in the time of the flood when creation, the, the world had become so corrupt through human sinfulness, even though we're just a few chapters into the Bible. God brings a worldwide cataclysmic judgment on the world uh, through this flood and destroys just about everything and everyone. He could have just ended it right there. Right? He could have just wiped everyone out, all the people. He could have wiped out the planet and just said, it didn't work, I'm done. But he didn't do that. Right? He saved Noah and his family in the ark. And then after the floodwaters subsided, God brought Noah out of the ark into what was, in a sense, a new creation. And he treated 
Noah like a new Adam and said to Noah the same thing he'd said to Adam, which is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So even there at the beginning after the flood, God shows he's not abandoning his plan. He's not abandoning his creation. He does bring judgment on it, but then he begins to rebuild. We see the same thing throughout the New Testament. Excuse me, throughout the Old Testament story. When um, the people of Israel rebel and sin against God in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt, when they are supposed to go into the promised land, they don't believe. And so what does God do? He doesn't abandon Israel. He brings judgment on the generation that was unfaithful, but then he raises up a new generation and brings them into the promised land. What does he do when he makes these amazing promises to David about the Messiah coming from his line and reigning on his throne and establishing his kingdom forever? What does he do when David sins and then his son Solomon sins? Well, Uh, After Solomon's sin, he divides the kingdom in two, but he preserves Judah out of faithfulness to the promises he made to David, and he continues to work through the nation of Israel. Saul, who came before David, was the first monarch, the first king of Israel. He was a failure. He sinned against God. He didn't listen to God. He didn't trust God. But God didn't abandon the monarchy. He raised up David. And then when Solomon sinned, he didn't abandon the uh, nation of Israel, he divided it, but he preserved Judah. When the nation went into exile, uh, uh, the nation of Judah, when they went into exile in Babylon, he didn't leave them there. He brought them back into the promised land after 70 years, enabled them to rebuild the temple. So the point of all that is uh, that God uh, does not abandon his original intentions just because people don't hold up their end of the bargain. Don't do what, we were, what we're supposed to do. Just because we sin and sort of throw a wrench in God's plan, God's plans can never be thwarted. God's purposes can never be thwarted. And so God, though he brings judgment, though he tears things down, he always replants, rebuilds, restarts what he had originally intended. So we should not expect, there's nothing in the Bible that leads us to expect that God will just abandon his original design of men and women, embodied people, living on the earth in God's presence. That was his original intention and design in the beginning. And everything we read in the Bible inclines us to believe that God will somehow bring that purpose to fulfillment even at the end. And we don't just have to sort of read between the lines and discern patterns to figure that out. We have direct promises and prophecies in the Old Testament that this will be the case. For example, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah predicts both a world-destroying judgment and a new creation. So, for example, in Isaiah 24, verses 1 and 4, he says, The Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. And he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken his word. So God is going to destroy the earth as we know it, Isaiah says. But then he comes back in chapter 65, verse 17, and he says, Behold, I create new heavens 
and a new earth. That's God speaking through Isaiah, of course. I create new heavens and a new earth. And then in chapter 66, verse 22, right at the end of the book, he says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. So all the way back in Isaiah, we have this promise that God, though he's going to destroy the world as we know it, is going to create a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation for his people to dwell in. Now you might say at this point, I thought though that there was a verse somewhere that said that the world as we know it is going to be burned up and destroyed. Well, there is. In 2 Peter, so this is in the New Testament, 2 Peter 3.10, Peter says, The day of the Lord, that's Jesus' return and judgment that comes with it, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Peter does say that there's going to come this second cataclysmic judgment, like the flood, except this time it's going to involve not flooding, but burning. The heavens and earth will pass away. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. But here's the thing. We have let that verse shape our thinking in such a way that we often imagine that as the end. That's that's sort of the final word on the universe. It gets burned up and destroyed. But again, we need to keep reading. Just a few verses later, in 2 Peter 3.13, Peter says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now here's my question. Why hasn't that verse shaped our thinking about what's going to happen in the future as much as verse 10 has? Why is it that in our sort of uh, you know, sanctified imagination, right, our, our Bible-shaped imagination, why is it that the passages of the heavens and the earth passing away and things being burned up and destroyed, why is it that those have taken hold in our minds, but the passages about the new heavens and the new earth have not? The passing away of the current heaven and earth makes way for the new heavens, and the new earth, which is the glorious promise that God has given us about what the end, the new beginning, is going to be like. So what this means is we need to reckon with the fact that the Bible is emphasizing something that many of us are overlooking. And by overlooking it, we are diminishing our own hope. We are hurting ourselves. The new creation, the new heavens, the new earth is not a small doctrine tacked on at the end of the Bible that we may or may not be interested in. It is an old promise woven through the scriptures that ought to be woven into our lives as well, breathing hope into our hearts. So, Now that we know this is not something new or something small or insignificant, let's look at what Revelation 21 and 22 has to say about this new creation. Now we could spend sermons upon sermons unpacking these two chapters. I just want to hit some of the highlights this morning. So here's where we start. Verse 1 of Revelation 21 
says, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So right here, we're right where Peter left us, right? The, the first heavens and the first earth, the one he, God created in Genesis chapter 1, the one that we are living in right now, that heavens and earth is going to pass away. It's going to die, as it were. And in its place will be, or maybe it will rise. There's different interpretations of how all this works. But in its place, somehow, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So earth has not been abandoned. Earth has been either renewed or replaced by a new earth. But the idea of us living on the earth has not been abandoned by God. He has simply prepared for us a new earth in which to dwell. And not only are we going to dwell on this new earth, but God is going to dwell with us. Remember in uh, the early chapters of Genesis, God walked in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. He was present there with him. They had fellowship with him before they sinned. And that is going to be restored at the end. Verse 3 of Revelation 21 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So we put this together with what we saw last week, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, that when Jesus comes back, our bodies are going to be raised from the dead, resurrected, no longer perishable, but now imperishable, no longer mortal, but now immortal. We'll have immortal resurrected bodies, We'll have a new creation, a new earth to live upon. And God himself is going to come to dwell with us upon the earth. In other words, God is restoring his original design for creation in the beginning before sin. He is restoring that and making it even better for us at the end. What went wrong in the beginning as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, he's going to fix that too. Right? Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Remember, there was no death before Adam and Eve sinned, but God uh, told Adam that if he ate from that one tree that God had forbidden, if he ate from that tree, then the wages of that sin would be death. The, res- the consequence of that sin would be death. And, and the Bible says that Adam, through his sin, he brought death into the world. There was no death before Adam sinned. And at the end, death will be no more again. Death will be banished. Remember, uh, we saw last week in 1 Corinthians 15, again, that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And when Jesus comes back and raises his people from the dead, that will be the end of death. In fact, right here in Revelation 20, uh, in verse 14, just before the verses we're looking at this morning, at the, uh, the final judgment is described, and then in verse 14, after the people are judged, it says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So even death will be put to death. Death will be no more, no more death in the new creation. We will no longer die. And not only that, but he says, uh, Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, 
for the former things have passed away. So everything that has gone wrong with the world as a result of sin, both death coming into the world because of sin and the curse that brought in, uh, multiplied pain for women and for men in their respective roles, women's pain and childbearing, uh, Genesis 3 says will be multiplied. The man is going to have to uh, work painfully His work will be toilsome. He's going to have to uh, get bread by the sweat of his brow and will return to the dust. All of that is going to be undone and removed. No more pain, no more crying, no more mourning, no more death. Everything that has gone wrong with the world, God is going to set right. And look at how he says it in verse 5. He says, Behold, I am making all things new. All things new. It's not going to be like it is anymore. God is going to make everything new and make everything right in the end. And in this new heavens and new earth, there is in a sense going to be a new Garden of Eden. Remember how the Garden of Eden was this lush and beautiful place. It was surrounded by four rivers uh, that uh, made the garden uh, flourish. And um, in the garden was the tree of life. And Genesis 3 indicates that if Adam and Eve had been allowed to live in the garden and eat from the tree of life, they would have lived forever. And in Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2, as as, uh, John is being shown this new creation and the new Jerusalem in the new creation, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So in this new creation, in this new heavens and new earth, we've got rivers should be the river of the water of life, and we have the tree of life, indicating that all we need, God is going to provide for us to nourish us, and we are going to live in His presence forever. So if that seems too good to be true, right? if that seems beyond anything you could possibly deserve, the truth is that it is. It's beyond anything any of us could deserve or even dare to hope or ask for. But the Bible also makes clear that this is how grace works. Our God is abundantly gracious and merciful, and He gives to us far beyond what we deserve. Look back at verse 6 of chapter 21. He says, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And then he says this, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So here's what qualifies you to share in the glory and goodness and grace of this new creation. You just have to be thirsty. You just have to long for it, desire it, know that you need it. If you're thirsty for what will truly satisfy, and you come to God asking for that, He will give it to you. And He's made a way 
to give that to you through His Son. Earlier in the book of Revelation in chapter 5, the, uh, the Lamb of God, Jesus, is surrounded by praise and worship. And, and here's what's sung about Him. They say, you were slain, talking about His death on the cross, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So Jesus came to the earth as a man. He laid down his life on the cross to ransom people, to redeem people, to buy us back, to pay for our sin. People from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every people group. And he's made them a kingdom. He's made them priests to his God and the people who... That applies to the people who are redeemed, who are ransomed, or the people who wake up and realize they're thirsty, and who come to Christ and say, I need you, I need forgiveness, I need to be reconciled to God, I need you to make me right, I've done so much that's wrong, I need you to change me, I need you to save me, I need you to give to me good things that I don't deserve, I want to live the way that you designed me to live in your presence. Surrounded by your glory, seeing you face to face, but I don't deserve it. But I believe that Christ died to make me worthy, to clean me up, to forgive me of my sin, to make me righteous in your sight. Anyone who comes to him, pleading, thirsting, asking, trusting, receives All of this and more. So the Bible makes very clear that the end is going to be like the beginning, but better. It's going to be a new beginning with a new heavens, with a new earth, unspoiled by sin, untouched by the curse, unaffected by death. God will dwell with us and we will be his people and we will see his face, the Bible says, And we will reign with him. The Bible does not end with destruction and absence, but with creation and presence. His presence with us.